Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording April 3rd, 2023, we're speaking with Vice Admiral Angus Topshi, Commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, about the newly launched Naval Experience Program. Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Davy Shipyard. Founded in 1825, Davy is a premier builder of advanced specialized icebreakers and many other ships for the Government of Canada and the private sector. As Canada's longest established, largest and highest capacity shipbuilder, Davy has delivered many of the most pioneering vessels ever built in Canada. Davy generates thousands of good jobs and billions of dollars for Canada's economy. Through its work, Davy is helping to build a sustainable marine industry, combat climate change, defend sovereignty, support trade, generate exports, and unleash the potential of the communities it serves. Admiral Topshi, welcome to Defense Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the podcast that I've listened to so often. Well, uh, we have a great uh, topic to kick us off uh, today because uh, just days before we're sitting down to tape this on the 3rd of April, 2023, uh, you folks uh, in the Royal Canadian Navy launched uh, what you're calling the Navy Experience Program, um, which to my mind is, is, I guess, probably the second innovative piece of, of recruiting personnel attraction um, uh, policy change, I guess, that the, the Canadian Armed Forces has launched in the last couple months, the, the first one being the the move to allow permanent residents uh, to serve. But this Navy experience program um, seems like a pretty interesting and, and slightly different initiative. Um, so tell us a little bit about it and then uh, we'll get to why it is that uh, you went down this road. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're really excited to launch the program. Uh, it's built upon the, the recognition that the Navy right now is short about 1500 people in the regular force. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we were breaking through with a creative opportunity that would appeal to a lot of Canadians. It's just a one-year program. So that's first and foremost, it's at 365 days in the Navy. At the end, there's no strings attached. If you're not satisfied with the, the life in the Navy, uh, then there is no further terms of service, no requirement to sign up. You don't even have to tell us you're leaving. You're basically, you're automatically disenrolled at that point. And at the same time, we have that chance that through that year to, to have a look at each of these candidates as they come in. And we, we've learned and listened uh, to Madame Arbour and her report on the Canadian Forces. And one of the recommendations she made was let's have a probationary period to look at people. And so this is taking that recommendation and putting it into practice. And so over the course of that year, we're going to take these uh, you know, Canadians in, give them eight weeks of basic military qualification training. So that's the same basic military qualification course that every other new applicant uh, to the Canadian Armed Forces does. Then they're going to do four weeks of Navy-specific training. That's a lot of damage control, sailor-specific skills. And that combination of about 12 weeks of training qualifies them to do any general duties job on board the ship. It, it doesn't take them to the, the training to do a full occupation within the Navy, but it gives them enough that they're actually useful on board a ship and they can contribute to the general running of the ship and provide appropriate assistance in a damage control uh, scenario should, should anything misfall or respond to a search and rescue or anything else like that. So over the course of the next nine months, we're going to run them through all of the different opportunities the Navy offers. That's not all going to be at sea because there's a lot of the Navy's job that doesn't take place at sea. But we will make sure as part of that they get to sea. Ideally, they'll get to see a foreign port because part of the value proposition of the Navy has always been join the Navy, see the world. So we want to make that meaningful and realistic for them. Uh, and they're going to be exposed to all of the different occupations across the Navy. We learned a long time ago that a lot of people don't really understand the differences between all of our different occupations because we name them in terms that make sense to us but don't translate very well because most people have no idea what an NCI op is. Even if I tell you that's a Naval uh, communication information operator, uh, it still doesn't really tell you what that job's all about. 
And so this way, the people will be able to make an informed choice about what they'd like to do in the Navy. Uh, and so if they say, you know what, I like this life, I'd like to do this, we'll help align them to an occupation uh, that seems to fit them, because now we've got a good sense of them. We'll make sure they're a good cultural and ethical fit for us, that they're the type of person we want in the Royal Canadian Navy, that they like the lifestyle and they want to join the organization. So we're really excited about that potential that's going to happen towards the later end of that year, once everybody's got a good sense of the other. Now, you're, you're also, from what I understand, you're still keeping the kind of the, the normal, regular means through which people have uh, more historically joined uh, the Navy. Um, I guess, uh, what, what are you thinking about in terms of kind of creating those dual tracks? And are you looking to potentially get different people with different interests or exposure? And then I guess um, the other component of that is, could you just lay out a little bit for us, how does this particular program compare in terms of the time it takes to do initial training the length of commitment, just uh, so people are situated with what the actual differences are. Yeah, and so if you join the Navy through a conventional application process, you're looking at an initial engagement of three to five years, depending on the exact program that you enter through. Um, and it streams you directly into an occupation. And one of the things we've learned over the years is that some people are just not really prepared to make a commitment of even like what seems to me as I reflect back on what's nearly a 33-year career, three years doesn't seem like a lot. If you're an 18-year-old just coming out of high school, three years can seem like a tremendous amount of time. And that's, that can be a big commitment for someone. So we wanted to offer a different option, someone who's potentially looking for a gap year. So this is, like I said, just a one-year program. The other thing is that a lot of our early attrition in training comes from a misalignment of the person to the occupation that they're doing. Because again, many times the recruiter in the recruiting centers who are all great people, they may not have direct experience of the detail of all of the Navy occupations that they're recruiting people into. And sometimes there's just a simple misunderstanding of, this isn't the job I wanted, but that job over there looks better. And so to avoid some of that initial entry uh, attrition, you know, switching things because we've invested in training, then we switch people into other things or even into other services. We want to try and make sure that these are informed choices so that there are two different paths. If someone walks into a recruiting center and says, I am, I really want to be a Marine technician or MarTech, then we have an entry plan for them. In fact, we can even send them to community college to get a head start on a lot of the training that they're going to do fully subsidized, fully paid for. So all of the other entry plans exist. We're trying to offer an option that simplifies and streamlines the process. And that makes it an easier decision for people. And honestly, we'll happily take people to come in, experience the Navy for a year, enjoy an adventure, uh, have a great experience, serve their country for a bit of time. And if they walk away at the end of that, that's fine with us. Like they have, you know, they've made a contribution and they got a better understanding of what we're all about. So you mentioned that one of the, the key motivators was the, the 1500 uh, or so folks, the, the Navy short, um, having uh, been in a space to watch the Navy for uh, pushing two decades. Now uh, the organization has been under strength by give or take a thousand people for almost that entire time. Um, so is there something more particular to the, to the circumstance now um, uh, leading to this? I mean, I guess I, I think that, um, my observation that one of the biggest changes that I can observe now is that the whole force is seriously under short um, in a way where it's not just uh, the Navy having issues with some trades, but are there a few other things uh, influencing this? Because the, the personnel shortfalls have been uh, fairly longstanding to this point in time. It, it's true. My entire career, the Navy has been short some number. Um, right now, the number is larger than it's been before. Um, the other difference is that the number of ships that we have in service, because we decommissioned our, our destroyers, we decommissioned our, our supply ships, and while we're building replacements for those, they're not here yet. Um, and so, you know, in the past, we had a larger pool of sailors in the fleet on ships from which that we could move about and mix about. Now that we've got a smaller pool of ships, 
that shortage is much is felt much more acutely because the back end of the business, all of the work of force development, personnel management, training hasn't changed. And the pool of sailors at sea doing the business is smaller. And so to make that all work, that 1,500 people short, we're really feeling that quite acutely. And you're right, in the context of a calf that's, you know, depending on exactly what number you're taking, is around 10,000 short as well. You know, there's fewer people overall to do, do these jobs. Uh, we're seeing the same labor shortages across industry as well. Um, and so it's just, I think, created even greater sensitivity to this, this personnel challenge at the moment. No, I, I, I may just have missed it, but uh, are there other CAF-wide initiatives that are offering a similar type of opportunity to this where you can basically have like a one-year uh, tryout period? Because um, I haven't seen any indication that the, the other services, as an example, are offering something comparable. And in reading about this, um, I think at the end of the, the service, there's also potentially going to be the opportunity at the end of a 12-month period that if you decide that um, you don't specifically like the Navy, but another part of the Canadian forces that you might have been exposed to uh, is more for you that you'll be able to, to potentially transfer to another branch. That's exactly it. So the other services are looking at this program. We each have uniquely different requirements. Um, so while we're all one Canadian Armed Forces, the reality is that there are differences between the Army, the Air Force, uh, and the Navy. And so this is a pilot project. Uh, we wanted to try something different because we know that the Navy is unique and different. We know that life at sea is not for everyone. We know we have a, a, a occupational structure that is difficult for people to understand so that they know what jobs might be the right sense for them. Um, and like I said, because we know that this is difficult, because the demands that we place on people, you know, it takes a special type of person to be able to do all of that. If someone does this program and realizes it really isn't for them, um, then I think you know that's that's a win for us because again we haven't invested more than the minimum amount of training in that individual. That basic military qualification that they've accrued along the way is perfectly valid for the Air Force and for the Army. They'll have a better sense of what military life so like. We'll have a sense again of that ethics and values of that individual. Are they a good fit for us as a CAF? Uh, and if they are, then yeah, we will transfer them quite happily across, or actually allow them to apply into a job in the Army or the Air Force. And so that's the other thing I want to emphasize. It's not so much a transfer at the end of this program as an application for full-time continuing enrollment. Again, it comes back to the idea that this program is all about, you know, let's try it out for a year. And at the end of it, we both have to agree that this makes sense to continue and align that individual to an occupation. Uh, not being an expert in this, but having a little familiarity with some of the um, multiplicative uh, personnel policies that uh, exist within the military, I, I guess, and, and I know that this is almost literally just launched, but do you have a sense yet about uh, looking ahead? This is going to create um, some interesting dynamics with people with different experience backgrounds, um, different points of entry, different terms of, of service, which are, um, if this is produces large quantities of people, you're going to have a, a kind of a whole mix of people that got in different ways with, with different levels of training. Is any early thoughts about how you'll be looking to, to try and uh, manage all of that? And I, and I would just as a corollary to that, I, I imagine you must have had to navigate a fair number of uh, policy changes or exemptions to, to get this program where it is today. Because this, uh, I, I would commend you for doing something that's out of the ordinary. Um, but because it's out of the ordinary, uh, I imagine that that might have been a little bit of a challenge. 
uh, well, bureaucracies are not well known for uh, their embrace of novel approaches or, uh, or such, but I will be fair to Chief of Military Personnel, General Bourgon, and the Commander of Military Personnel Generation Group, uh, General Brody. They have been absolutely fantastic assisting us along the way, making sure that, you know, that all of our interests are served in all of this. So there are a few different changes in this. So one of the big ones is that the Naval Reserve Divisions will be allowed to recruit directly into the regular force for the first time in that. So that's a huge increase in capacity. We're leveraging the 24 Naval Reserve Divisions across Canada and the really talented reservists who've been recruiting successfully into the Naval Reserve will now be allowed to apply those skills to regular force recruiting. And that, that's a benefit to the CAF as well, because that you know effectively doubles in some ways the capacity of the recruiting centers across Canada, which was, there's only around 24 of those. Um, so that's a net increase that I think, again, we're not taking capacity away from regular recruiting efforts. We're adding to it with something novel and innovative. Uh, you know, th there are always challenges around programs like this. So, it, you know, is it a different entry plan? Absolutely. Um, it won't cause any complications down the road in the sense that once we decide that this person is really going to go on and do that NCI trade that I mentioned before, or wants to be a weapons engineer, or even actually potentially could apply into an officer entry program, um, then they will go through that normal process. And so they'll quickly be aligned to the rest of that cohort that'll be joining through that path. The bigger challenge for us is that for me, this is also a forcing function for us to get a better handle on all of the people that we've already got in the Navy who are awaiting training. So offsetting that 1500 people were short is a basic training list. People who are not yet trained to the required standards to be fully employable in their occupation that's around 1,400 people in the regular force and another 1,400 people in the reserve force. Navies have always been experiential learning places. You know, we give you a little bit of classroom learning, a little bit of theory, and then we put you at sea in an, an effectively an apprenticeship program to learn the job on, you know, at sea on the job. Um, and there's a lot of those skills that can happen. What we want to do now is we realize that we need to do a better job of tracking all of those people. So not just the new entrance to the Naval Experience Program, but also all of those who are already in the training system, potentially awaiting formal training. How do we make sure that we're tracking them and creating opportunities for experience that will aid them down the road? So there might be a bit of a wait for the course that they're going to go on, but we can do something that is a skill that they will need later on in their careers, bring that forward. We're also trying to modularize our entire training system. And we were very linear, right? Bureaucracies love order. So you start at A, then you go to B, then you go to C, then you go to D. You know, so we've sort of said, look, if the goal is to get to all 26 letters of the alphabet, does it really matter unless you're trying to make a word, what order they come in? And we've said it doesn't. So, you know, because we're not trying to make words out of this, we're just trying to make sure those skills get imparted. So unless there's a reason for one thing to come before another, we're modularizing our entire training system and allowing us to deliver it in the most efficient and effective manner possible, and also allowing for the nature of, of life. And sometimes things happen and a person's going to miss a chunk of a course. Well, there are going to be easier ways for them to come back and do that element without having to repeat the entire thing. Better tracking of all of our personnel across the board. You know, and we, we want to make sure is that these new entrants under the Naval Experience Program, our commitment, the center of gravity for this is the experience of those sailors, that sailor experience. That can't come at the expense of the sailors who are already in the Royal Canadian Navy. So we need to make sure that this has to up our game across the entire institution because the most important resource we have is our sailors. And so this, again, is going to make sure that we are taking care of all of the sailors in the Royal Canadian Navy, not just those who are you know, new entrants to the Naval Experience Program, not those who are still on the basic training list because of traditional entries, but also those who are serving and continue to serve uh, you know, at great personal sacrifice. We want to take care of all of them, show them that they're really, truly valued and appreciated, and that you know, make their experience as positive as possible. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. 
Canada's National Shipbuilder is currently hiring. For more information on the many jobs and opportunities currently available, please visit www.shipsforcanada.ca slash careers. So again, recognizing that this program literally just launched, um, as you're looking forward, are, are there particular indicators that uh, you'll be monitoring for to, to, to evaluate success? Yeah, absolutely. So we've set a very ambitious goal um, that 80% of the applicants to this program will be enrolled within 21 days. Considering that right now the average uh, time for enrollment is around 166 days through the traditional entry plan, that is extremely ambitious. Uh, and we're looking at, so can there, are there more things that we can do in terms of risks we're willing to take to accelerate that process, knowing that these people are only in for a year? Can we lean forward on a few requirements that allow us to sort of, you know what, we can make sure that the medical standard is exactly where it needs to be over the course of that next year. We can make sure that the yeah, we've done the criminal record check, but the full security clearance doesn't really need to happen because we, we will manage them carefully, recognizing that they probably only have a very low level of reliability at that point. We can manage all of that. So we're looking at other things that will allow us to speed the timeline. The other critical metric I'm looking at is the Australians have a similar program. In fact, this program has its history in our organization. It used to be known as the Youth Training and Experience Program, or YTEP. About 20 or 30 years ago, it was a, it was a common entry program for a number of people. We want to see 80% of the applicants, the people who are enrolled through this program, convert to full-time service. And so that's a great metric for me to say that if 80% of the people who join this way join and stay in the Navy, then we know that our culture is probably welcoming, that we're meeting our goal of creating fulfilling, meaningful work um, that Canadians enjoy doing. Uh, and so that's the thing I'm going to be watching quite closely. But we're, you know, we're, it's a little while before we really get the data on that because this is a year-long program. So... We're having this conversation as you're about 10 months into your command, uh, by my math. Um, obviously, I, I think from, from the preceding conversation, the personnel issues are, are, are top of mind. I, situate for our listeners, though, um, from your vantage point, as you're trending towards the, the first anniversary of your appointment, um, what's the state of the Royal Canadian Navy as we're sitting here in the spring of 2023? Yeah, so when I took command uh, on the 30th of May last year, I set out three priorities in my flag by signal, and that was people. We've talked a lot about how we're going to make sure that we're, we're growing the Navy in terms of people. There's more work to be done in terms of setting the right culture within the Navy um, to really make sure, because again, people are our most important resource. How are we really taking care of them and creating an environment where they can all prosper and succeed uh, to their full potential? Uh, the second priority for me was platforms. And so over the last year, I've come to better understand where we're at from a force development point of view. Where are we at in the current, the fleet that we're operating right now, the Halifax class frigates, the maritime coastal defense vessels and the Kingston class, the Victoria class submarines or interim oiler and Asterix and all of the other capabilities that go into making the Navy of today. Uh, and then as well, what are we building for the future? We're taking delivery of the Arctic and offshore patrol vessels. We've got joint support ships, one and two under construction now. Looking forward to taking delivery of the future HMCS protector in just a little bit, uh, and the Canadian surface combatant coming down the way. So that is, you know, the goal remains to cut steel on the initial production test modules next year, be in full rate production uh, within a year or so after that. And then, you know, there's lots of interest in a Canadian patrol submarine project potentially. Um, you know, the government has expressed a desire to have submarines. We're waiting to see what the defense policy update says specifically about that. So all of that work on the platforms front to make sure that we're truly, you know, a digitally enabled Navy that is fit for the present and, and shaping for the future. And then finally, for me, my third priority was being ready to fight. Um, we may not have the luxury of waiting for that future fleet. We need to be ready to operate with the fleet we have today. 
And that means that we not only need to make sure that all of those ships are operating in the best possible condition, but that the, the crews on board them are ready for that fight and everything it will involve because naval warfare in history has been vicious and deadly um, to a degree that, uh, that many people forget because it so often happens out of sight, off of out of mind and infrequently. We lose sight of the number of casualties that happen in combat at sea. And so I'm very mindful of the fact that when the, the Korean Corvette, the Chonan was sunk in 2010, 42 Korean sailors were killed in that sinking. Several hundred sink, kill, sailors were killed when the Admiral Belgrano was sunk in the Falklands War. We have no, many, uh, no idea how many dozens died when the Moskva was sink, uh, sunk in the Ukraine conflict. But we know naval warfare is deadly. We need to be prepared to make sure that that doesn't happen to us, that our sailors are ready for that fight, and that they have got the innovative mindset that we see in Ukraine is inculcated across the fleet so that we don't lose out in that environment should we be forced to confront it. And the more ready we are for that fight, the more likely we are to deter it. So again, three priorities when I took command, people, platforms, and being ready to fight 10 months into the job. I remain as convinced as ever that those are the right priorities in the right order and working hard to make sure that they are meaningfully implemented across the board. In a bigger picture sense, uh, you had the, as the, in midstream in, in your um, first few months, uh, the announcement announcement by the government of, Canada of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, and I think it was last week at this point that um, HMCS Montreal uh, left Halifax as the first uh, East Coast-based um, frigate that's going to be deploying to the uh, Indo-Pacific theater as part of the, our commitment to increase the, the number of frigates we're sending there from two to three. Uh, and I know that you just had an opportunity to, to travel to the region um, a couple of months ago. What have been your impressions thus far about um, um, that government policy announcement and what that commitment specifically is going to mean for the, the RCN looking ahead? Well, I've certainly heard from all of my allies how impressed they are with the government's Indo-Pacific strategy, um, not least because it shows a tangible commitment to the region, but more importantly, it came with money. Um, and to be honest, that's what most people look to when they see government policy announcements is, uh, okay, that's nice, great words. Where are the dollar signs behind it? And in this case, they're real. Um, so for the Navy, uh, it is a significant uh, change of emphasis. So it's not, not, we're not deploying more ships overall. We're just reallocating and being smarter about where and how we're deploying those ships. So yeah, HMCS Montreal, accompanied by uh, our Naval Replenishment Unit Asterix, to, you know, left last week for, you know, to, to take the long trip from Halifax across the Atlantic, through the Mediterranean, through the Red Sea and Suez Canal, round south of India and into, you know, well, the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, where they're going to operate there for, for a total of six months uh, before coming all the way back home to Halifax. It's a long way to go, but the honest truth is the Pacific Ocean is a big ocean, so it's actually not that much shorter uh, for a West Coast ship to deploy across the Pacific. Um, Montreal, that's doing that deployment, would otherwise have deployed to NATO. So again, we always deploy four ships a year. Historically, it's been two to NATO uh, and two to Indo-Pacific. Now it's going to be three to Indo-Pacific, one to NATO. Picking up the slack on the NATO front is that we're using maritime coastal defense vessels. So we just had a very successful deployment last year of two maritime coastal defense vessels joining NATO standing maritime forces and operating in that mine countermeasure rule um, that as we've seen again in the Black Sea coming out of the Ukraine conflict, mines remain a part of war at sea and we need to be capable of understanding the subsea environment and reacting to it. The Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipeline uh, explosions also highlight the vulnerability of subsea infrastructure. And so these platforms are designed to be able to monitor and react to situations like that. So they are capabilities that are very much fit for purpose um, and relevant to NATO. We also intend to deploy uh, Windsor, one of our Victoria class submarines across to NATO as well. So again, 
It's not that we're not going to deploy in NATO, but there is a recognition that NATO is going to be predominantly for the Canadian Armed Forces, more of a land theater centered around the enhanced forward presence in Latvia, that ground combat capability directly relevant to the security of our allies and partners in Europe uh, on the ground, enabled by the Air Force and by the Navy. So our ability to keep the supply lines open to make sure that the soldiers get the equipment that they need at the times that they need it. All of that will still happen, but that Europe, NATO, more of a, much more of a land theater. Indo-Pacific, when you look at the geography, it is a maritime theater. Uh, you know, so we need to be able to, to deliver effect for Canada from the seas and above the seas. And so again, the Navy and the Air Force working hand in hand to make sure that that, that is realized. And to go to your, your second priority about the force development piece, uh, if schedules bear out, looking ahead, say five years from now, hopefully we'll have delivery and acceptance and operations of at least one, if not both of the joint support ships. Um, same thing by that point on the full uh, fleet of Arctic offshore patrol ships. What impacts would you envision in terms of, in, from a big picture sense, where you, where uh, the future commander of the Royal Canadian Navy will be able to allocate um, assets? Will you be still having to make the similar choices or, um, or will you have more freedom to potentially um, have uh, greater deployments abroad with the MCDB fleet, as an example, with, with all six of the RCNs, Arctic Offshore Patrol ships in service? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens as we return to mixed fleet operations, where we're going to have, um, you know, historically the Navy is sort of was frigates and destroyers, which were almost interchangeable, recognizing the air defense destroyers came with a command and control capability as well. But the um, now we've got Arctic and offshore patrol ships. That's the only ship that's able to do the Arctic operations that we want to do. But there's a lot more that it can do. And so, you know, we're going to have six of them. You know, every year we're probably going to deploy four. We probably don't really need to send four up into the Arctic every year. It is a fantastic uh, platform for constabulary tasks around the world. So illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing is a huge problem for our allies and partners across the Indo-Pacific and to be honest, in the Atlantic and around Africa as well. That platform offers the right mix of capabilities to assist in that regard. Again, money in the Indo-Pacific strategy to do that in Indo-Pacific. We've already been in talks with Department of Fisheries and Oceans to figure out what would that look like to help us in that front. So I see a, a role for the Arctic and offshore patrol ships further abroad. I see an ongoing role for the MCDVs. Most likely, Caribbean, Europe, Africa makes sense for them. The Atlantic, while still a dangerous and difficult ocean to cross, is a smaller thing, easier to manage. So we may see a shift of that fleet more towards the east. I suspect we'll keep it equal, but might see an increased emphasis on training sailors in the West Coast fleet with some operations down um, in the uh, around Central America. But so I think we're going to have a greater array of choices around those. The, the reality, though, is in terms of operations that we're going to do in support of the Indo-Pacific strategy and the far, you know, the far ranges of the Pacific and into the Indian Ocean, frigates are going to be required for those jobs. You know, it's the only platform that really makes sense to send into some of those waters. Um, and so the burden's going to be on them until we deliver the Canadian surface combatant in the 2030s. And remembering that the key date is not so much the date that we deliver and accept that frigate, it's what's its first operational deployment. Because until that date of its first operational deployment with frigates, the Halifax class frigate has to continue to bear the weight of responsibility for maritime power for Canada alongside the Victoria class submarines. And so um, we're doing a lot of work right now to make sure that we maintain that class because as I've, as I've said in a number of my presentations, the Halifax class is part of that fleet of the future because it is going to be around for 15 more years until we're ready to make that full transition where it can say it can go into its well-deserved retirement. 15 years is half a career in the Navy. That's a long time. So 
Uh, we're looking at a significant investment to make sure that the combat system remains relevant. And I, I do want to emphasize, like, um, we don't have the air defense capability that we, we need to have. Uh, when we decommissioned the Iroquois-class destroyers, that went away. But that doesn't mean that we don't offer value to our allies. The Halifax-class frigate is a, is a, a premier ASW platform, anti-submarine warfare platform, especially when you look at the Embark Cyclone helicopter and married up with the Mark, uh, Mark Block 4 Aurora Maritime Patrol aircraft. That is a, probably the best combination of assets in the world, and that offers real value to our allies. We have to be smart about how and where we deploy that because in a real combat environment, we are going to need to make sure that there's an air defense component as a part of that force. And that will almost certainly have to be provided by our allies until we deliver the Canadian service combatant. So we can manage, we can remain relevant, we can remain on the leading edge of all of this. And that's our determination. That's the value we offer to our allies. Um, so the Halifax class is still very much relevant in this day and age. Presumably though, since you're looking to have another give or take 15 years of service out of a fleet that's average age now is, is about 30. Um, the, the investment and the time to be able to keep it um, at sea and, and deployed with that tempo is, is probably going to increase. So the right now we're spending about a billion dollars a year uh, on maintenance for those ships. And in fact, that, that number is probably going to have to go up is the honest truth, but we don't have more time to do it. So we need to get smarter and more efficient. And one of the great strengths of the national shipbuilding strategy that we often forget is it's actually not just about shipbuilding, it's also about ship repair. And so all three of the, the main yards in Canada, Irving, Davy, and C-SPAN have got contracts for docking work periods for the Halifax class. We've now got, I've got spoken to the heads of all of those yards. We have great alignment around sharing best practices and making sure that as we learn an issue on one ship, that we're applying it to the others, where we're seeing corrosion and things that need to be addressed, that we're, we're looking for them in other places. And that really this is a Canadian you know, whole of industry, whole of government effort to make sure that that ship remains viable for the future. As a last thought, um, again, so you've had a lot of opportunities to travel. You're uh, been kind enough to take some time from a trip to, to Washington to sit down and, and record this conversation. I guess between what you've been seeing at home from the, from the fleet and the sailors across the country, as well as your international travel, and you made the comment that there's a defense policy update underway. Uh, what's gone into the type of advice the Navy has provided about how you see the world looking in the future through your landscape? You, know, you mentioned, you know, the, the the deadliness of naval conflict, and obviously seen some some uh, some concrete evidence of that in the Black Sea that you mentioned. There's been a lot, an awful lot of speculation about the potential for conflict in the Taiwan Straits or or around that particular issue. But I guess what what would you say are the, some of the key key strategic factors that have shaped uh, the kind of advice that uh, the Navy put forward to government as part of this defense policy update? The biggest thing I think that we've uh, fed into it is that the threats in the world are real. Um, we hope that the three oceans that surround Canada and our, our fortunate position close to the United States will continue to provide an assurance of Canadian security. But the reality is that our potential adversaries have the ability to reach Canada to take actions in our waters. And if we can't secure our own waters, we can't secure Canada. And so we need to make sure that we deliver the systems that first and foremost, let make sure we know what's going on in those waters. So all of that maritime domain awareness married up with the all of the modernization that's happening in NORAD, there is a maritime warning element to NORAD that we need to make sure that we're taking care of as well. So that advice has gone in and that doesn't have to be against ships or submarines. That's a lot about sensor systems and other things that, that are not about necessarily platform capabilities that are deployed, but systems we put in place and how we integrate them to, to best understand the environment. 
But at the end of the day, there is a requirement for platforms. We need to have the Canadian surface combatant that is fit to go anywhere in the world because Canada cannot be unable to go into a part of the world because it is too dangerous. The Canadian surface combatant is the minimum level of capability that is required to be able to operate in any theater of the world right now. As I said, the Halifax class is already below that standard because of its lack of an air defense capability, but we can, we can rely on that from our allies. In the future, we don't want to have to have that reliance because all sorts of things can change. You never know when Canada might decide we need to be able to do something on our own. Uh, and finally, the absolute guarantor of security of our own waters is a submarine. And so in DPU, we've made recommendations to government that we need to acquire a number of submarines. There was an excellent article in the Globe and Mail over the weekend that really, I think, better than I could lays out the case for exactly what type of submarines that we need. And I appreciate your efforts to help to cost those submarines. Um, they're, not, they're not cheap. Submarines are an expensive capability. They're an incredibly complex capability, um, but they're a necessary capability for Canada because nothing else offers the same degree of stealth, lethality, and persistence that a submarine provides. And so, you know, part of our recommendation is if we want to be sure of our safety and security here in Canada, as part of North America, we need to have a submarine capability. Well, Admiral, thanks for taking the time today to, to talk both uh, about the Navy Experience Program uh, in particular, as well as, as your view on, on where the Royal Canadian Navy sits uh, heading into the summer of 2023. Uh, when you're not uh, working, on, uh, working on these issues and, and worried about uh, the service, uh, what are you reading? I'm reading a fantastic book, actually, on the Battle of the Atlantic by Ted Barris. Uh, it's a really uh, easy to read, engageable book because it talks not only about the big themes of the battle, but the personal elements of that, what it was like to sail on board a merchant ship, on board a Corvette, on board a, a German U-boat in that fight. And it's, uh, I think, a perfect read for this this year because we're, the Royal Navy is celebrating the 80th anniversary of the height of the Battle of the Atlantic this summer, where we're celebrating the Naval Reserve Centennial and more than 80% of the Navy that fought and won the Battle of the Atlantic for Canada is from the Naval Reserve. So I can't think of a better book to read to really capture that spirit. And it's a pretty good reflection of the types of missions that we might have to do the types of, of sudden growth, innovation, and delivering Navy capability for Canada on very, very short notice uh, in the, you know, the most challenging of circumstances. Uh, so it's a great book for understanding the environment we live in today. Well, it's a great recommendation. Uh, Admiral Topshi, uh, thanks for joining us so much uh, today on Defense Deconstructed. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.